Good morning. So, in August 2021, the University of Sussex conducted the largest ever study on the topic of kindness. About 60,000 people responded to the survey, and here's a few things that they picked up when they looked at the results. The first is that they found that kindness is actually very common. So about 75% of the respondents said that they had received uh, a kindness towards them from a friend or family on a regular basis, uh, almost daily even. The second thing they said that the most common form of kindness was when people helped after they were asked to help. Thirdly, income makes very little difference to how much kindness people give. And then the fourth point is that women carry out more acts of kindness. Now, this was a self-reporting study, and so maybe we can take that last bit with a pinch of salt. <laughs> Possibly. I don't know. I'm just, uh, yeah, maybe. Um, now, I think it's wonderful that today we've got Teen Challenge with us. Uh, last week, we started with our theme for the year, and we're looking at this idea of thousands of kingdom moments. And we said we're, we need to start with prayer. And this week, we're looking at the theme of care. And then next week, we look at share. So it's prayer, care, and share. Today, we're going to unpack our passage for the day, which is Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 to 16. We're going to dig into a little bit of what did Jesus mean for us to be salt and light to the world. We'll consider the why and how of what it means to be people who care and why it's so important. And even as I've studied this, I found this very challenging because this is an area that I know that I need to really grow in. So as we start, can I encourage us to pray? I'd love it if we could pray this together. So pray this with me. Spirit of truth, we thank you that you are here. Spirit of truth, open our hearts to hear. Spirit of truth, we thank you that you are also the spirit of grace. Spirit of truth and grace, speak now. I pray. Amen. We're going to start by turning to our Bibles and uh, looking at Matthew chapter 5. So if you have a physical Bible, a digital Bible, um, can I encourage you to turn to that with me? If this is your first time here and you don't have a Bible, but you have a smartphone, download a Bible from your app store. It's so important that we look at scriptures for ourselves. And so once you've got that open, can I encourage you, if you're able to, to stand as we read from our passage this morning. So I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 to 16 from the NIV, but feel free to read from whatever version you like. It says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. 
A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Now, in verse 13, Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? Now, those of you that are chemists, you probably know that salt actually doesn't lose its saltiness. Sodium chloride is one of the most stable compounds that there is. And so the question is, well, why did Jesus make this comment if we know that actually salt doesn't lose its saltiness? And there are three perspectives that we can look at very briefly. First is the idea, uh, some people suggest that salt was different back in Jesus' day, that it actually had impurities, and when the salt that we know was sort of uh, washed away, which is soluble, It was washed away and it just left impurities and those impurities were useless. And maybe Jesus was referring to that. Some people suggest that actually Jesus was referring to agricultural salt, which is where they used to use a combination of uh, sodium, magnesium and potassium chlorides, all known as salts, and a bit of calcium sulfate. And they used to sprinkle a tiny amount of this on crops because they thought that this would help the crops to grow. And maybe again, when it rained and some of the salt that we know was soluble was washed away and it just left things that were actually useless and maybe that's what Jesus is referring to. The third option is maybe Jesus was just being rhetorical, almost sarcastic. And this is what I believe is the most likely interpretation So why do I say that? Well, first of all, Jesus, as we know, was fully man and fully God. Being fully God, he is therefore omniscient. He knows all things. He therefore knows that sodium chloride is a stable compound. He doesn't need to have done GCSE chemistry for that. But he knows it's stable. And so... I think there's an awareness that salt can't lose its saltiness. But also look at verse 14 in the passage. And this is why I love for us to have our scriptures open because we reference it and it's just helpful for us to keep looking back uh, into these verses. Verse 14, he says, You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Now there's a parallel between verse 13 and verse 14. Verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. In verse 14, he's saying a town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Or if he wanted to say it the way that he said it in verse 13, he would say, can a town built on a hill be hidden? And the answer, it's a rhetorical question. It's no. You can't hide a whole town when there's lights on it. And so maybe he's saying, I don't know why he chose to do it, say it differently, but that's just my take. I may well be wrong but I just think Jesus is saying, is kind of saying, 
salt cannot lose its saltiness. If we were to do it the way that he does in verse 14, he would actually just ask the question, can salt lose its saltiness? And it's a rhetorical question. In other words, I think Jesus is saying, you are salt and light to the world, and you can't be otherwise. Remember, he's not saying you are like salt. He's not saying you are like the light. He's saying this is who you are. You and I are salt and light to the world, and we can't be otherwise. The question then he asks in verse 15 is whether or not we're going to hide ourselves under a bowl or whether we're going to shine bright. In verse 16, we then look at it, and then he goes in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, I've got a little bit of a humble brag that I want to share with you. Over the last couple of weeks, I have helped two elderly ladies unscrew bottle tops. I know, even Mother Teresa would be impressed, right? Just so, I mean, amazing good deeds. But you know what was really strange? First one was down when I was in Waterloo waiting for a train, and I sat next to this lady. I could see that she was struggling to open her bottle of water, and I said, please let me help you. And so I unscrewed and handed it back to her. The second one, we were in Greg's in Poole, because that's where we hang out. And, um, and this elderly lady, I was walking past her, and she said, oh, excuse me, dear, can you help me open this? And I was like, yes, ma'am, of course, and there I was. On neither occasion... Did the heavens light up? Did angels come down? Did these ladies stand up and start glorifying my Father in heaven? It's weird. I was like, Jesus, but you said that they may say your good deeds, cause, and praise my Father who is in heaven. Effect. But I, wasn't that a good deed? But so why haven't they praised my Father in heaven? Like, how do we understand this? Is there a certain number of good deeds that we have to do before they praise our Father? Is there a certain type of good deed that we have to do before they glorify our Father in heaven? Or do we need to be like, are we at, do we need to be like at Mr. Beast level of good deeds? Now, some of you are going, what is he talking about Satan for? Right? No, Mr. Beast is not codenamed for Satan. Mr. Beast if for the uninitiated, is a YouTuber, which is a thing, allegedly. And he has the most amount of subscribers, if you can see clearly enough, I think it's 237 million people subscribe to his channel. I won't tell you how many subscribe to CityGate. That's a different story. <laughs> now, Mr. Beast has made a lot of his sort of popularity and money by giving away money. And in fact, you can see from here, he has rescued a hundred orphan dogs. I mean, if that isn't a good deed, what is? So how do we understand what Jesus is saying here when he says that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven? How do we, what, but I don't often see that happen. I'm doing good deeds, but what's going on here? So when we try and understand a bit of a tricky verse there are four things that we tend to look for. The first is we need to understand the original audience. Who was the person speaking to and what was their context? Secondly, we look at what's the original culture into which that took place. 
Thirdly, we look at what is the context of the verse. Look at the verses before, the verses after, the structure of the, of the passage, that book, etc. And then sometimes we look at other scriptures because scripture helps interpret itself and other scriptures and say, well, how does that relate to this scripture and how do they inform each other? Now, for this particular passage, we look at the context of this verse. So if you're in your Bibles and uh, you look at, go to uh, Matthew chapter 5, if you've been a Christian for a while, you know that this is titled the Sermon on the Mount. So this is about three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, where the recording of Jesus teaching his disciples in a very sort of structured manner and calling them to a very different way of living than they were used to. And it's titled the Sermon on the Mount. Because they were on a mountain, it was a sermon. Um, and, but, in, but if you look at verse 3 of chapter 5, that's titled the Beatitudes. Now, the Beatitudes were this very countercultural way of living that Jesus was calling his disciples to. It was countercultural then, and it's countercultural now. He's saying, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the poor, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's very countercultural. And so when Jesus in verse 16 is saying, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven, the disciples hearing that are not hearing it as an abstract verse. They are hearing it within the context of the Sermon of the Mount. And so they are saying, Oh, Jesus is asking me to live in this way. And as I live in this way, then people will see that I am living differently and they will praise my Father in heaven. They know Jesus is not a talking about random acts of kindness, but a way of life. And so for us, when we're caring for people, it's about a way of life. It's not just random acts of kindness. It's about a completely different way of life. Verse 14, Jesus says, you are the light of the world. But isn't Jesus the light of the world? I thought Jesus was the light of the world. But Jesus says, you are the light of the world. You and I are the light of the world. How does that work? Because if you've surrendered to Jesus, you have the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead living within you, and that light shines throughout. And so you are the light of the world. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? That's just... You are the light of the world. What does that mean? That means that without you, there is darkness. Without you, there is darkness. Without you and me, there is darkness where we are. There is darkness in our neighborhood. Without you, there is darkness in your classroom. There is darkness in your school. Without you, there is darkness at your university. There is darkness in your family. There is darkness in your office. There is darkness in your friend circle. There is darkness in Bournemouth, Southbourne, Southbourne Christchurch, and Poole. Because you 
are the light of the world. Our hearts need to be broken by the recognition that without us, there is darkness. And we have such a privilege and such a responsibility to bring what Jesus has done for us, to bring the light that God says is in us, not to hide ourselves under a bowl. The next time you go into a dark room and you switch a light on, maybe remind yourself, that's me. I'm the light in a dark world. I'm the light in a dark world. You are the light in a dark world. And you make a huge difference. Now the kindness survey said that many people show kindness and caring. And some of you are from a collectivist culture where it's very common. We all care for each other. We're in and and out of everybody's houses. But how is it different? How is our kindness and how is our caring different from the rest of the world? Well, if lots of people are kind and caring and so on, how how is our kindness and caring different? You see, the caring and the kindness of the world is just an imitation of light. It's based on batteries, It has its uses, but it is finite. Only the light that you as a Christ follower brings is eternal. And so only the light that you bring has the possibility of eternal impact. That's the difference. Other people can be caring. Other people can be kind. But it's Christ followers that can make an eternal impact with your caring and your kindness. That's why our good deeds matter, that we live lives that are different. This isn't about random acts of kindness, though there's nothing wrong with them. This is about a different way of life. There's a few reasons why I want to argue that the caring life is the Christian life. First of all, Jesus is our great example. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, it says that Jesus saw the crowds and he had compassion on them. He had compassion on them. He saw that they were harassed and helpless. And so he's our great example. We need to understand the people around us that we need to have that compassion for those that are around us. So first of all, Jesus is our example. He cared and he was compassionate. Secondly, turn with me to James chapter 2. So in your Bibles, turn to James chapter 2. James is in the New Testament, near the end of the New Testament. Turn or scroll, whatever it is that you're doing. James chapter 2, verse 14 to 17. James is writing and he says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, by faith by itself, 
if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Faith without action is dead. It's like a bow without an arrow. Many people would argue that our faith is supposed to be a private faith. Well, it's okay. I have a relationship with Jesus. But it's not. Our faith is called to be a public faith. If our faith doesn't have an outworking, then we've misunderstood the gospel. We've misunderstood salvation. We've misunderstood what God has called us to. We have to have faith. We can't say, oh, I love everyone, if love doesn't, isn't accompanied with care. If love isn't accompanied with concern for people. A husband tried to make a shortcut once. And he, his wife got really upset and would say to him, oh, why, you never say I love you. Why don't you say I love you? And he said to her, he said, honey, when we got married, on the day we got married, I said I love you. If that changes, I'll let you know. It's not something I've tried for my own safety. (laughs) But of course, love is more than just words, right? It's more than just words. And so it's so important that we learn that our faith is outworked with actions. And our love is outworked with actions as well. The question is, where are we on this caring continuum? Are we in a place where our caring is convenient or where it's costly? Ellie Southey tells of a story where she had a neighbor that was going through a really difficult season and she would just randomly come and knock on her door and two hours later she was still there pouring out her heart and Ellie's missed some meetings or been late for stuff. It cost her a time. It will cost you money. You might have to buy something for somebody. You might have to make a meal for them. It'll cost you energy. For those of you in school, it'll cost you your street cred. Why on earth are you hanging out with that loser? Why are you caring for them? You're so uncool. It's costly. Or are we just being convenient? Is our caring rational or is it radical? You might say, and I struggle with this. Oh, I can't pop around to my neighbors. What if they're in the middle of something? Oh, I can't give them a call. They might be busy. Some of you rationalize your care to say, I'm the one that needs caring for. I don't have the energy to do it, etc., etc. You know, one of the most caring people in this church is Susie, who goes to our Southbourne site. And she's wheelchair bound. She's sick constantly, having to be on antibiotics. But I know, and we have experienced her care personally. She's one of the most caring people you will come across. But we can so easily rationalize our care, but we need a care that is radical. And then there's the question of, well, is it incidental? Is it these random acts of kindness, or is our care intentional? Mike Wilson tells a story of how he, when he was a young child, he was six or seven, and he was very poorly, and he didn't get to church regularly. And he remembers one of the things that really stirred his faith journey was the fact that one of the leaders of the church that they went to came round to his house to ask specifically about how Mike was doing. He was intentional with his care. 
And we need to be challenged. I'm not saying that all our caring has to be costly or has to be radical or has to be intentional. By the grace of God, God uses whatever care. But I encourage us to be moving in that direction. There's this lovely story I heard recently about a a worship team. They went into a a restaurant run by an Iranian uh, Muslim. And they were going there for lunch, and they sat down, and they were waiting to order. They waited a while. Eventually, the waiter came, took their order. They were then waiting longer and longer, and their order didn't come. And they could have got irritated at best and racist at worst. But instead, they noticed that actually the restaurant was short-staffed. And so they went to the restaurant owner, and they said, Hey, we noticed that you're short-staffed. Do you mind if we, if we help out serving? And so instead of eating lunch, they served tables. And then they went back the next day and did exactly the same. And so then they invited this Iranian Muslim businessman to come and to their choir practice. He said, well, we've got choir practice. Would you like to come? He came along. And after the choir practice, they said to the Iranian restauranter, they said, all of these people in this choir have signed up to a rota to serve at your restaurant for the next two weeks. And so they went and they served and they did whatever was needed and helped out. And this story was told by that restaurant owner's son because the whole family came to faith. Why? Because they cared. Because they showed care. And this is really important. You see, so many of us in in Ephesians 5.2, Paul says, "Let let us live a life of love just as Jesus was. Surrendered, his was costly. But so often we we try our missional efforts are are like this. We we're like, you should you should live like this. You should stop looking at your phone when I'm preaching. You should <laughs> you should do less of that. And we send out these truth bombs, or maybe we improve it and we send out these random invitations hoping that they'll land, come to, come to our carol service. Why don't you come to Alpha? Um, come, to, you know, come to our quiz night. And we hope that they land. But actually, what do we need to do? We need to come off our high horse and come up and say, hey, I noticed that you haven't been out in the garden recently. How are you doing? Is everything okay? Can I help with anything? Because although God uses truth bombs and he uses our random invitations, this is my main point. People don't care what you know until they know that you care. People don't care what you know or even who you know until they know that you care. And that's so important as we look to be missional. Now you might say, well, what if they don't? What if they don't want to be cared for? Again, that's probably you rationalizing your care. Actually, yeah, people may feel awkward that you're helping because we live in such an individualistic society, but care anyway. They might think, oh, this is weird. There might be a space of vulnerability, but care anyway. So what does or could caring look like? Maybe being a shoulder to cry on. 
cooking a meal for the single parent down the road, running groceries for your elderly neighbor. If you're in school, it could be as simple as inviting the weird kid out to the movies, at the office, picking up slack for somebody who's really struggling at home, taking someone out for a coffee and just listening to their story. It could even simply be pinging someone and wishing them all the best for an interview, making a meal, building flat pack furniture, lending them something. For some of you, maybe God is calling you to get more involved with social action. People like Teen Challenge to volunteer there and give of your time. Maybe it's to quit your job and actually join a charity. Who do you need to reach out to? Who do you need to make a phone call to, bake a cake for, be a shoulder to cry on? Folks, our caring needs to be costly, radical, intentional. Because as we do that, we will start a carevolution. Cheesy, I know, but I'm going with it because you'll remember it. A carevolution. We need to start a carevolution. That's what Jesus set an example. And that's what will change things. Your neighborhood, your office, your classroom will look very different. And I guarantee that as you live in the fullness of that carevolution, you will eventually see people coming into the kingdom of God and glorifying your Father who is in heaven. Live in the fullness of who you are. Salt and light to the world. There's a quote from a lady called Margaret Mead, and she said this. She says, Never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it is the only thing that ever has. I don't fully agree with her. I've taken a twist on it, and I want to say to us today, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed, spirit-empowered Christ followers can change the world. Indeed, we are the only thing that will truly change this world because you and I are salt and light to the world. Can I ask us to stand this morning? We have a powerful calling to eradicate darkness in this world. You have a powerful calling to eradicate darkness in this world. You are empowered to do that because the Spirit of God is within you. And we do that by prayer. We do that through care. And we do that by sharing the love of God, what he's done for us. And so this morning, just with our eyes closed, if, if you feel challenged and you want to, this is not for me, this is just between you and God. If you know, if you want to step into increasingly costly, radical, intentional care. If there's somebody that you need to know, I need to make a phone call. I need to reach out. I need to whatever it is that you need to do. Can I just encourage you, whatever way you want to respond, whether that's putting a hand up, putting your hands out, just say, Lord, stir my heart to care for those who don't know you. Stir my heart, Lord. Lord, let me move away from my care being convenient my care, rationalizing whether I should or can or can't care, 
or from being incidental. Lord, I want my care to be costly. I want my care to be radical. I want my care to be intentional because I want people to see the light that you have placed inside of me. So Lord, may we be a people who bring a difference to this world, who live our lives differently in the way that we care, that people will see you and glorify you, our Father who is in heaven. May we be a caring people. We bless you. We ask for your spirit to empower us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.